Okay. I didn't get a chance to preview my uh, slides because I forgot to bring my slides on a jump drive, so I had to go home real quick and get it. So hopefully there's no surprises for you or for me. We'll see how it goes. Um, since I've come to the church, I think this will be on the screen. Since coming to the church in December of 1994, I've only got two and a half books of the New Testament I've never taught. Uh, I haven't, there's, there's more of the Old Testament to do, but in the New Testament, only two and a half books. And I don't say that meaning that the next two and a half books I'm going to do are the two and a half I've never done, because I'm pretty sure that's not going to be the case. But if the Lord is gracious and merciful, before it's all said and done, I will get those other two and a half. Actually, I'm not sure about the half. I'm not sure that I'll do the half. Um, because the half a book that I haven't done is the second half of Acts. And that's what Larry's doing in Sunday school now. And so I think that'll tide us over for a good long while. I don't know that I'll need to ever revisit that. But I did the first half of Acts kind of in two different segments way back in the day. Other than that, there's only two books of the New Testament I've never done. And if you've been here the whole time and you've got a really sharp memory, you would know that those are first and second Timothy. So it used to be three and a half because I'd never taught Ephesians and we're in Ephesians now. But uh, the two books I've never done yet are first and second Timothy. It always seemed appropriate to me that when like everybody's getting ready to put me out to pasture, I should do first and second Timothy because those are probably Paul's last two letters he wrote to Timothy uh, as a young pastor. Uh, somebody that he kind of mentored. So when I'm doing First and Second Timothy, I'm, it's like I'm hearing the bell toll, and I realize I need to wrap this show up. But one of the books I did way back in the day is Romans. We did that from two, two years, and it shows three years on there. But it really was about two years because we started late in 2003, and then we finished somewhat uh, about two years later in 2005. So we did the book of Romans almost 20 years ago. And when we did the book of Romans, when I chose, I think I actually had a poll whether we would do Romans or Hebrews as a church. And Romans was picked, and that's the one we did. That or it's vice versa. Hebrews was picked, and I did Romans after the fact. I, I can't remember. That's a while ago. But at any rate, when I did Romans, I, I made a discovery that I hadn't made to that point. Uh, a different kind of a discovery, because every time I'm in any book of the Bible, there are things I discover that I didn't realize were there before. But when I did Romans, I thought, this is really going to get tough. It'll really be challenging when we get to Romans chapter 9. Because in Romans chapter 9, in the Bible, like I have in my, you know, up here on the pulpit for Romans chapter 9, it has a little heading. It's called, in Romans 9, God's Sovereign Choice. And I thought, oh, that's going to be tough. Because that is, uh, it kind of puts man in his place and it exalts God. And, and there's some language going on there that uh, I, I spent my life in church. I didn't hear many messages from Romans chapter 9. And we were going to go through it verse by verse. And so I thought, that is going to be some, some tough rowing. And I was kind of kind of wrong that that wasn't the hardest chapter at all. It wasn't Romans chapter 9 that was so hard. It was a different chapter. When you look at the whole book, there was another chapter that was much more difficult, challenging, hard to accept in the, in the flow of what took place. Now, if you were to guess what chapter that would be, it would be kind of interesting. But as it turns out, 
It was Romans chapter 14 that was the really hard one. I didn't see that coming. In Romans chapter 14, it's, it's about Christian liberty and freedom and how different Christians view, some view one day as in a particular way and other Christians view every day kind of alike and matters of eating and drinking and Christian liberty. And that was tough. There were some tough moments, especially in one particular question-answer time, for some very good reasons. It was hard. That was a hard chapter. Well, in Ephesians, where we're at today, we've, we've kind of hit our, our Romans moment. That same moment like in Romans chapter 14. But the topic really isn't anything to do with Christian liberty or freedom. But it's probably going to be the, the hardest chapter we've had to deal with. Now, we started Ephesians back in May of 2022. I don't know exactly when we'll finish. I'm getting slower as time goes on. Uh, but we've arrived at that point. So here, I think, is what we're going to be talking about, is we're going to be talking about the home, uh, the family structure. Uh, and that's what's going to be, in some sense, particularly difficult. Martin Luther called what we're about to uh, go through, and we're going to go through it astoundingly quick, I think. Now, I wouldn't believe me either. But I think it's true. And I've done, a, I've done more reading this week than I normally do. And I usually do quite a bit of reading. But I'm pretty sure we're going to go through it quick. But here's how it's going to go. Today we're going to lay a lot of groundwork. And then next week, I think in one fell swoop, we're going to deal with husband wives in all of the rest of chapter 5. And then the week after that, we'll launch right into Romans or, uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Now in Ephesians, we've already dealt with kind of like... The tough stuff in Romans, we've dealt with some really hard doctrine early on. We've dealt with uh, Paul talking about some really hard application, about the things that come out of our mouths, the attitudes of our heart, the anger that we have or may have, the way that we can treat one another, the way that we can blend in with culture when we shouldn't blend in. All that stuff has been tough, but now all of a sudden, he's going to, he's going to start talking about our home life, being a Christian at home. This is a little pamphlet that was written back in the 1980s by Keith Green's wife, Melody Green. And in this little pamphlet, she makes a couple statements. They read like this. The hardest testing ground for our Christianity is right in our own homes. With our own parents, our brothers and sisters, our husbands and wives, and our children. If we can't demonstrate our Christianity there, we can't demonstrate it anywhere. And then she goes on to say, If we won't go the extra mile for those we literally share our lives with, who are we trying to kid when we knock ourselves out by being super spiritual at the Bible study? Christianity, if it doesn't change the way I am at home with the people that know me best, then what kind of faith is it really? It's easy. Like, if, if all my Christianity needs to do is make me look good on a Sunday. Most of us can buck it up for an hour or an hour and a half. But at home with the people that we rub shoulders with day in and day out and eat meals with and everybody knows each other's habits and, and shortcomings and weaknesses and hot buttons, if Christianity doesn't change our attitudes and behaviors at home, it's not what God intended. 
So that's what we're going to be dealing with. That's what I think is going to be difficult. Here's the plan. It actually starts all the way back in chapter 5 and verse 17. It goes all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9. Here's what we're going to do this morning and where we will leave off. Number one, read the passage plus. Now, if I read the passage, what I intend to do is I'm going to give a little bit of... um, Enough background material that you're going to see how it all flows. I want you to see the big picture. So we're going to read the entire passage, starting with 517, and all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9, I'll make a few comments right at the outset so that you see how the whole thing is being developed by Paul. That's what we'll do first. It won't take terribly long. Number two, we're going to identify the two prevailing views of this passage. The two dominant views, how to view husband-wife relationships, particularly in their own marriage and in their own home. There's two predominant views within the church. Number three, we're going, I'm going to comment on the main points of controversy in this passage. I've got a plus minus there, and what, and that means to remind me that along the way, I'm going to, I'm going to show a video. It's about four minutes. I'm also going to play a little bit of audio, maybe one minute. Uh, I might throw in a quote or two. And in doing that, that may be beneficial or it may really not be beneficial. Um, I want you to realize you've got to take anything that's extra biblical with a grain of salt, right? Because I can I can assemble certain people that I think uh, are reflecting what I think is true. But at the end of the day, it's... It's their persuasion, and it may be my persuasion, but just because different people are persuaded by any one particular viewpoint doesn't make it right. We could all trade stories. I could trade my stories about what was, what do I know, what have I experienced growing up in a home, how have I seen husbands and wives react with one another, and you could tell me your stories, and that's not what is going to determine what God is prescribing. So that's kind of a plus minus. I I hope it's beneficial, but it doesn't necessarily prove anything. Number four, I'm going to identify how the Bible in general, and this passage in particular, should and should not be approached and understood. There are certain ways we typically fall into understanding the Bible, and that may or may not be helpful. And so I want to just kind of identify that. And then eventually what we'll do probably next week is actually teach the passage's main points. And as I said, my I think the best way to do that so that I don't get bogged down is to do husband and wives all together in one message. We'll see how it plays out. I'm not going to say, I'm a little dry here. I don't mean speaking. <clears throat> my throat's a little dry. Just to be clear, Um, I don't at all intend to address every little point that could be made for lots of reasons. One is, uh, I'm not sure everybody is up for that. Uh, It could be be tedious, uh, and I want to make sure we get the main points most of all. However, I am happy to uh, address more finely tuned specific points of understanding or misunderstanding on some level, both during the question and answer time, but after the service as well, 
I can make lots of recommendations. I've read a good number of journal, journal articles this week, both those that agree with me and those that don't. A journal article is valuable because it is finely tuned. They are general, generally academic people. And in a journal article, it's very much a reduction of a book. So it could be typically six to 12 or 16 pages. And they're concise. They get their points across pretty quick. So uh, I'm happy to do that. Probably the one book I would recommend is probably the best one I've read to date is a book called Women and the Word of God uh, by Susan Foe. Um, I haven't read like scads of books, but out of the books I have read, that's probably the best one I've read. It's not a new book. It's been out now for quite a while. But Women and the Word of God by Susan Foe. So let's start. Let's start with reading the passage. And here's what, before I read it, here are the few guidelines that I want you to recognize once we work through the passage. Number one, it starts off in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is driving this entire passage all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9 is this is the will of the Lord. If you get this, this enti- and there are lots of verses, you are understanding what God's will is, what the will of Christ is for you, for us, as a community of believers, which everybody, or very popular in our culture, are people trying to understand, what is God's will? What is Christ's will for me, for the church, for us as a group? Here it is. It's spelled out in Scripture. We don't have to guess. I don't have to preach a topical sermon. It's from chapter 5 and verse 17 through chapter 6 and verse 9. If you get this, you are understanding the will of the Lord. And it will be challenging enough. If I were to reduce all those verses down to just one statement, what is the will of the Lord? It's the very next verse, verse 18. But uh, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What is the will of the Lord? It's being filled with the Spirit. Now, thankfully, Paul just didn't stop there, because depending on your denominational tradition, you may have a different idea what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, It can look very different in different churches. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit recognizes that, or maybe he doesn't recognize it, but the Holy Spirit recognizes it. And so he tells us, here's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Because I'm not going to leave it up to denominational traditions. You get to decide what being filled with the Spirit looks like. I'm going to tell you what being filled with the Spirit looks like. This is what we did last week. After the command to be filled with the Spirit, which is the will of the Lord... He gives you four participles for these these verbal nouns that tell you, here's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. There's addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, there's a horizontal component to being filled with the Spirit. If you're a Christian all by yourself, impossible to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It requires community. It requires engagement with other believers as we converse back and forth as to what God has said is true. We remind ourselves, 
partly through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of the Lord's character, His faithfulness, His goodness, what He calls us to, what He's called us out of, that all takes place on a horizontal level. That's the first component to being filled with the Spirit. Secondly, it's singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. That's the vertical component. There's both the horizontal component and the vertical component. That we are singing to, to God who, who so loved the world that He sent His own, one and only, our only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we're reminding ourselves of what God has done. And our relationship first and foremost is with Him. So there's the vertical component to being filled with the Spirit. Thirdly, there's giving thanks always for everything. And then it goes on, and let me read that verse to get it right. Uh, Always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week, what that means, what that looks like. Uh, how How Christ has modeled what it means to live a life of obedience and submission and giving thanks to the Father, even when he's celebrating the, the last supper he has with his disciples in the upper room. He gives thanks, knowing that the bread he's giving them, which represent his body, it's going to be his body that's nailed to the tree. And in spite of that, he's giving thanks. It doesn't mean that he's, he's anticipating with joy and excitement the suffering and the bloodshed and the humiliation and the treatment he will receive, but he gives thanks that his Father is greater than whatever men can do to you. And so he gives thanks in front of his disciples. And then lastly, the last component, the last uh, participle is submitting to one another, which is a demonstration of humility that ought to characterize all of God's people. Those four things are what are required to be filled with the Spirit. And as that all is taking place, you're understanding what the will of the Lord is. So, I'm not sure what the next slide is. Okay. Then, this idea of submitting to one another is kind of a magnifying glass is set over it and it's kind of explored or detailed more specifically from chapter 5 and verse 22 through chapter 6 and verse 9. He's just said the last component is submitting to one another. And then he goes through these different uh, relationships and what is required in light of that command that he just gave. So now having said that, look how it all ties together. I will read starting in chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Then the second category, children and parents. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then the third category, bond servants and masters. Bond servants... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, Do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. That's the entire passage, all under the umbrella of understanding what the will of the Lord is. That's the whole. Now let's look at the two prevailing views of this passage. There are two. Most of, uh, for many of you, you've heard of these two views. The first view is called complementarianism. And the second view is called egalitarianism. There are good Christians that hold to each of these views. This is a second order of Bible doctrine. In other words, uh, a view of wives and husbands in relationship to one another, you're not going to find it in the Apostles' Creed. Because it's not a first order doctrine. It's not, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And that we believe certain things about Christ the Son. We believe certain things about the Holy Spirit and the one, the one Christian or the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting to come. It's not that order of doctrine. It's second order. So there are good Christians who will disagree with me. And it doesn't mean that I'm right or they're right. We could both be wrong. Or one of us may be right. Or one of us may be closer to being right then the other is being right. But it is a second-order doctrine, not a first-order doctrine. It does affect the way that you approach a lot of Scripture. I'm not saying that there aren't uh, certain ramifications as to where you may fall on this, but it's just not a first-order doctrine. And then to put my cards on the table, I'm going to let you know where I'm coming from. I put myself, even though it's it's a balancing act, oh, maybe I'll say this as well. With the two views, complementarianism and egalitarianism, there are extremes on both ends that are dangerous and abusive and hurtful on both ends. 
You can be so far on the complementary side. I'll read a quote for you from uh, uh, Kent Hughes in a little bit, where he describes some of those extremes that are hurtful, and I do not think or reflect what Scripture teaches, as there are extremes on the egalitarian side that are hurtful and do not reflect what God's Word in, intends. So, I'm talking more the mainstream in both cases. I will try to characterize them, although this is going to be very superficial on some level, a very brief. I've got so much time, I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to, I do want to give you a good grasp as to what the possibilities are. So let's start with complementarianism. This is the teaching that masculinity and femininity, that's kind of like a femininity, are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement or complete each other. So that's why you can see where it's called complementarianism. That men and women are created by God to complement one another. A second statement. Complementarians believe that the gender roles found in the Bible are purposeful and meaningful distinctions that when applied in the home and church, promote the spiritual health of both men and women. Embracing the divinely ordained roles of men and women furthers the ministry of God's people and allows men and women to reach their God-given potential. As men and women faithfully complement one another, it's good for the family, it's good for the church, it's good for society. I can't... Yeah, I do have one for complementarianism. It begins with two texts of Scripture. I say begins because uh, in both cases, uh, the Scriptures I show you are not the only Scriptures that could be shared. But this is where it starts from a complementarian point of view. It starts with two point passages of Scripture. Number one, Genesis one twenty-seven. So God created man in his own image... In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then it goes on, what we find out after Genesis chapter 1, and this is a very interesting statement, then what you're going to find in Genesis chapter 2, that it kind of backs up and gives you a different lens as to what God has done in creation. And it's not a separate creation, it's just he's gone through seven days... And then he backs up and he kind of tells the story again, kind of like what we're learning in Sunday school where Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9. But now in Acts chapter 22, he's retelling the story and there's different details that come out that weren't told in Acts chapter 9. And then what he tells in Acts 22 doesn't include everything that was in Acts chapter. In other words, they complement one another. Just like the four Gospels complement one another, they don't merely dictate the exact same press release. They, they give color to the whole story. So in Acts, or, uh, Genesis chapter 2, what you find is that Adam was created initially by himself, and he's tasked with naming the animals, and he's naming the animals, male and female, and, and it is found that there's nobody like him. And in, in chapter 2 it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so he causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and out of his side, out of a rib, he forms a woman. 
And she was taken out of the man. So from those two passages, that's the, the beginning of, of the viewpoint of complementarianism. And part of the nuance and intrigue of it all is in chapter 1, it's made very clear that there's an equality there. They're both created in the image of God. But in another sense, she's not actually created until somewhat after the fact in Genesis chapter 2. But God is establishing there's an equality there. But there's also a distinction because she's derived from the man. And so that would lead to the, the, the understanding of a headship or a leadership, given, a charge given to the man because he was created first. Now let me look at the egalitarian point of view. Something like this. When used as a doctrinal term within Christianity, because uh, egalitarianism is uh, it's adopted within the church, but it obviously has a lot of meaning outside the church. That's not really so with complementarianism. So when used as a, as a doctrinal term within the church, within Christianity, egalitarianism maintains that men and women are equal in worth as well as in activity and function. So equal not only in worth and value, not only created in the image of God as, as was the man, but also equal in activity and function with no distinctions. So it would look something like this to make it more clear and to break it down. Most egalitarians believe, and uh, most means what it is, not everyone, Lori, not everyone, just most, I'm very clear here, okay? Most egalitarians believe all roles should be ability-based and never be gender-based. Number two, Spouses are equally responsible for the family. Number three, marriage is a partnership of two equals submitting to one another. And number four, men and women can equally hold the same church leadership, leadership positions. That's the egalitarian point of view. That is based largely upon, not solely... But largely, if you were to pick out, I gave two verses to the complementarians, that would be uh, where my sympathies lie. That's where my convictions lie. I think that is, is closest to what is taught in the whole in Scripture to make my cards, lay my cards on the table. Uh, but two verses to the egalitarian side would look like this. It's built upon two key texts. Number one. Genesis 3.16, to the woman, the Lord said, this is uh, because there has been a, a trespass in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam and Eve have, uh, the, Eve was deceived, Adam knowingly trespassed and ate of the fruit that was forbidden. And so the Lord uh, explains the a curse on the serpent, on the soil, and consequences on the man and the woman. And the Lord said to the woman, Your desire shall be contrary to, contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So from an egalitarian point of view, the fact that we have um, role distinctions in the church or in the family is a result of sin and not an order or a mandate with the original creation from an egalitarian point of view. And then that follow that up with Galatians chapter 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the way that they try to process Scripture together, they would say the fact that we seem to have these distinctions or make these distinctions in the home and in the church, which is a result of sin. But in Christ, we're all set free. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, slave or free, male or female. And so those distinctions are erased. And there should be an equality both in activity and role in the home and in the church. Those are the two views, brief and explained. I think I'm going to move on. Number three. Here's the controversy in, uh, in Gen- uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. The easier controversy has to do with the idea of a, a slave or a servant and a master. Anytime the Bible talks and describes a relationship of a servant and a master, it makes uh, especially Western people cringe a little bit because most of us uh, have some pretty rightfully horrific understanding of what took place in American slavery. Uh, If you've seen a movie like Amadeus or if you've read certain history books, a lot of what transpired in American slavery is not what most of the world has ever known or experienced. It wasn't exclusive to America, uh, but the American variety of slavery was particularly heinous. In a lot of the world, in a lot of world history, uh, indebting yourself to somebody as a servant was a, a honorable way to pay off your debts. In America, you declare bankruptcy and you start over and there's no, and there's little consequence. But in, I, I think most of world history, at least most of world history since the time of Christ, is if you were so indebted, you became a servant to somebody and it was a legitimate and measurable way to pay off your debt and then, and then you were released from that debt. But, Because of our understanding of American slavery, when you read about that relationship in the Bible, it makes people cringe and kind of recoil from the whole thing. So that's problem number one. Uh, I'm not overly concerned by that problem. doesn't mean that you're going to think I satisfactorily deal with it. But personally, I I don't have a real problem with the way it talks about that. The bigger problem is the idea, this whole concept of submission and submitting and submission, particularly in this uh, where Paul talks about wives submitting to their own husbands and everything. That's the larger problem uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, in our, again, in our American culture, uh, we are very, um, we so highly value independence and freedom and deciding things for yourself that to speak of submission or submitting on any level tends to uh, make us bristle. Uh, We're not real comfortable with that concept. And probably, if you've lived very long, you could probably come up with some some pretty awful stories of, I'll say, husbands that are, uh, what would be a word you would use in a church service, Uh, boorish in their behavior uh, or boorish in their character or something, and it seems this would be a very hard word in light of those situations. I think this is why I bring in Kent Hughes. So Kent Hughes says, regarding this, God's holy word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. 
I have seen couch potatoes who order their wives and children around like the Grand Sultan of Morocco. I've seen adulterous misogynists with the domestic ethics of Jabba the Hutt who cow their wives around with Bible verses about submission. I've seen insecure men whose wives do not dare go to the grocery without permission, who even tell their wives how to dress. But the fact that evil, disordered men have perverted God's word is no reason to throw it out. Uh, So in understanding that there are those types of situations, it is always good to identify where something has has been, that is wrong, misapplied, and call it wrong, and then move on to what God has originally intends. It's always a similar way would be something like this. Uh, I think we can rightfully criticize our democratic republic and our capitalistic system. I think we can rightly criticize our constitutional republic because it's not perfect. It's not the millennium. It's not Christ's kingdom come to earth. It has flaws. We can rightly criticize it. I'm not willing to exchange it or want to sign up to exchange it for socialism or communism. I I would say don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We can rightly criticize where men have gotten it all wrong because of what the Bible says in this passage regarding wives and their husbands. And we need to call it wrong. And we need to, to... Teach them and come alongside them and confront them with getting it right without jettisoning the whole, all that God has said regarding the family. Next, the word patriarchy. Let me talk about that because in a little bit I'm going to play a Rosaria Butterfield clip. And she's going to use the word patriarchy. Patriarchy in its most literal sense is talking about a father ruling. So it's the idea that a father rules his household. Uh, in, in a more general social construct, it's that men tend to lead society. Uh, there's a book called the Mo- A Model for Marriage written by a husband-wife team. And I, I say that, I, I'm not really positive. They share the same name, I assume it's husband-wife, but that's an assumption on my part. I can't, I didn't really check it. But in this book, A Model for Marriage, it makes a distinction between what they call hard patriarchy and soft patriarchy. It's kind of similar to uh, when I was talking about complementarianism or egalitarianism. There's kind of a mainstream variety and there are extremes that are dangerous. So I think patriarchy is a good word. But I'm not talking about the hard patriarchy that I think goes far beyond what Scripture envisions. Uh, hard patriarchy, they define as, it advocates adherence to a rigid structure of male-ascribed authority. Husbands make critical and final decisions while, while wives submit without question. Power founded on inequality has the potential for abuse and manipulation. When I talk about patriarchy, that's not what I'm envisioning. And that may be based on your experience, what you've seen, or maybe you grew up with, that is what you were envisioning. It's kind of like when we talk about God is your father, he's your loving heavenly father. But for some people, an image of a father being loving and supportive and caring and defending you, that's not their experience. And so you have to kind of work through that and saying, we're not talking about 
the perversions of that. We're talking about the beauty of that. So I'm not talking about that hard patriarchy. I'm talking about what the authors call a soft patriarchy that places final authority. I, I would prefer the word responsibility, but they use the word authority. It places final responsibility with the husband, but emphasizes a suffering servant role in which a husband's leadership is to be fashioned after Christ, who laid down his life for the church. That's a soft patriarchy. That's a, I would call that a biblical patriarchy, not the hard variety. Now, having said that, Rosaria Butterfield uh, has come out with a new book, and so she, she addresses some of these issues. The new book is entitled, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Uh, it's real recent. It probably is within the last couple of weeks, maybe the last couple of months. Uh, if you're not familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, she's an astonishing woman. She is highly academic. She has a PhD. She was highly not Christian. Uh, she lived as a lesbian for a good number of years. Uh, she was converted through the faithful witness of a Presbyterian pastor and his wife. And uh, she renounced her, her former life. And she became a Christian. And she's now actually a pastor's wife. And, um, and her, her conversion is, in some sense, is kind of like a Solon the Damascus Road conversion experience. Because the, the, uh, the spectrum of change is so dramatic. I grew up in church. I grew up in Missouri, Senate Lutheran. Uh, I've always been comfortable with church and liturgy and song and scripture. I, I wasn't born a Christian. You're, you're born again a Christian. And it's the same miracle of God. I don't want to say it's not. But uh, I can't tell you that, oh, I lived this horrible life of sin where I had no regard for any of the things of the Lord. I, I was a pretty good religious Pharisee. I can play that part. But God saved me from that. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield did not come from that kind of a background, though she was obviously on some level raised Catholic. She's named after the Catholic Rosary, and she that's her story, not mine. I didn't make that up. But uh, I'm going to play a four-minute clip. It's two minutes of her recounting her life before Christ, and then two, two minutes of reflecting on her understanding of uh, husband-wife relationship and uh, a biblical patriarchy. So, Daniel, if you'll be ready to bump up the computer uh, slider, if it's not loud enough, I can't tell from where I'm standing because the speaker's up there, it's shooting past me, so it never sounds loud enough to me. But if Daniel can hear it in the sound booth, you're good to go. Uh, it's about four minutes, it goes like this. I was converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 24 years ago when I was an associate professor of English, women's studies, and queer theory at Syracuse University. I was in a lesbian relationship with a woman who was an adjunct professor of psychology at a nearby university. And at that point, I had been in and out of serially monogamous lesbian relationships for a decade and had been a gay rights activist for two. My most popular classes were in feminist queer theory, which focused on the worldview of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. I co-authored the university's domestic partnership policy, which served as bellwether and archetype for gay marriage activism. I spoke at New York gay pride rallies and met famous gay rights leaders. I hated the Bible and its teaching, and I taught thousands of college students to do the same. I proudly became one of the tenured radicals who worked laboriously to make homosexuality look wholesome. 
And I did all of this because I believed with my whole heart that I was gay and that gay was good. I helped create the evil in which we live. And I can never let that go. My conversion to Christ came with the loving offense of the gospel, shared over hundreds of nourishing meals at a Christian neighbor and pastor's house. After two years of meals and having read the Bible through seven times, I committed my life to Jesus. I broke up with my lesbian partner and started to grow out my butch haircut. How Jesus was going to deal with my persistent lesbian feelings not to mention the fact that I was tenured in queer theory, was a big mystery to me. (laughs) Because the idea of men and women being made by God's design for God's purposes on earth, they would say, is old-fashioned, silly, dangerous, abusive, and culturally driven. Some professing Christians even erroneously believe that Adam's headship is a consequence of the fall, and thus a sin. They claim that there is no biblical warrant for a married woman's submission to her husband or elders or for elders and pastors to be qualified men. Bible verses that call for a wife to obey her husband in the Lord, such as Titus 2, 4 through 5, 1 Peter 3, 1, and Colossians 3, 18, are contextualized and dismissed. Such feminists believe that feminism offers a corrective to Christianity because without it, misogyny will run rampant with biblical support. Without feminism to the rescue, they argue, the church will promote sexual abuse by giving perpetrators extreme and unchecked power and spiritual abuse by prohibiting a woman from using her gifts. Feminism, both without and within the church, is a rejection of patriarchy and progeny, that is, men and babies. One obvious criticism of my position is that it supports biblical patriarchy. Guilty as charged. (laughs) My support of biblical patriarchy did not come easily or because I suddenly started to believe that men were good. No man is good. Psalm 53, 1 through 3 declares, and Romans 3, 10 restates, none is righteous, no, not one. Because men are evil and not good, I began to understand that we need godly men to protect their families and churches from these droves of wolves we see, especially today. The question is not whether you want men in charge, but which ones do you want? The men who have committed their lives to King Jesus? She goes on from there, um, but you get the gist of it. That That's her weighing in on this particular issue. Let me go to uh, number four, how to approach and understand the Bible on this particular issue, but really all of the Bible, how to approach and understand it. Number one, you have to. I have to understand that I've got certain biases and prejudices. Um, you've got them, I've got them. It's impossible to be without them, and the best way to keep them in check is by by putting myself under, on some level, uh, the tradition of the church that has been handed down, the truths of the church that have been handed down through the centuries, and by involvement in a local church. My experience has been, so this is anecdotal, my experience has been that probably some the, the most common... Strange views about the Bible come from people that don't go to church. 
Uh, and it's actually something else that struck me as odd over the years, is sometimes I get different reactions when people find out I'm a pastor. Uh, sometimes it's rare, but sometimes the reaction is you're a pastor, and they're like, oh, they want to share with you their spiritual belief. And it's usually bizarre. Uh, and usually I just say, well, tell me, where do you go to church? And chances are they, they don't. Uh, because the church is meant to be a corrective that if I'm getting very far out there, the church says, you've gone too far. Uh, we either have to part ways or you've got to get back in line because that is not what has been handed down to us by the apostles. Uh, so, first of all, understand I've got those biases and prejudices. I need to subject them to the church. The church in history. If it's a new view with me, it's wrong. Secondly... It's understanding personal experiences are just that, they're personal experiences. Truth is not determined by my personal experience, be it good or be it bad. Uh, I could say I grew up in the most loving, wonderful home where the husband was this wonderful self-sacrificing leader and, and the wife or my mother was so, so wonderfully submissive, it was beautiful. That doesn't make it right if that's not what the Bible teaches. Or you could say, I grew up in a home, it was, every, it was the opposite of what I just read in Ephesians chapter 5. That doesn't make what Ephesians 5 say as wrong. Your experience is only your experience. It counts for something, I get that. But truth isn't determined by each of our experiences. Just like last week I told you, or was it two weeks ago, last week, the will of God isn't determined by, I feel good about this decision... And I have peace. That's wonderful that you feel good and have peace. God didn't say, here's, here's how you will understand my will for you. If you feel good about it and have peace, run with it. Nowhere is to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That's how we know what is the will of God. The will of Christ. Number three, the use of extra biblical background information as a key and the standard. To use extra-biblical background information is helpful, or at least could be helpful. It kind of colors in things that the Bible doesn't say. They're not inspired, but if I understand certain things about uh, Jewish history or Roman Greek history when the New Testament was written, and and from some Jewish historians or uh, from uh, Roman historians... Uh, different historians that have written, I can look at their material and it can kind of, it can kind of make uh, what Scripture says uh, come alive a little bit differently. It can help a little bit, but it's not inspired. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate when a book goes on the market and becomes very popular and then people uh, think they begin now to associate what is true with a book or a TV show. What's the, like The Chosen, you know? I, don't, I haven't seen The Chosen, so I, and I really don't really want to. That's not, I'm not a TV person anyway. But if you're watching The Chosen, the danger there is that your view of Christ is shaped more by a TV show and different people that have produced that than the Word of God. And that, that's kind of dangerous. I would call that thin ice. It's dangerous when people read the Left Behind Tim LaHaye series and they have their whole view of eschatology and how it's all going to come down. Because Tim LaHaye wasn't inspired, the Apostle John was. 
He wrote Revelation. Now you could say, yeah, well, Revelation's hard. Okay, it's hard. Uh, Tim LaHaye may be easier, but that's not what God inspired. He inspired John to write Revelation. So our time is well spent. It's the only, Bible, the only book in the New Testament that uh, pronounces a blessing upon those who read it. So you want a blessing tonight? Go home before you go to bed and read Revelation. So far as a standard goes, I would say, you know, understanding things in, in history, they helped color things, but please don't use a standard outside of Scripture to, ter- to determine whether Scripture is true. Don't let a psychologist or a sociologist or a historian or a scientist tell you that can't possibly be true because we've got studies that show this is true. <laughs> I mean, what is it? I mean, I grew up with revivalists that say, let God be found true and every man a liar or something like that. God's word is true. I don't care what study you come up with because they change as a deck of cards is dealt. And what was true a year ago is not true today, and what's true today certainly isn't what's going to be true uh, in another year in a lot of arenas. Here's a man named Dustin Benge, or Bang, I don't know how to say his name. He's at Southern Baptist Seminary. Uh, he's an American theologian, historian, professor. Uh, I was unfamiliar with him until I saw this quote, and I thought it was a really good quote, and I thought it pertained to this. Uh, he said this. And he's, he's giving these uh, objections to the Bible. They're in quotes. So objections are, unhitch the Old Testament. Reject biblical gender roles. Elevate Jesus' words over Paul's words. Interpret scripture through a cultural lens. Modernize scripture for the present culture. All these are just a new all these are just new ways of Satan asking the same old question. Did God really say wives submit to your husbands? Did God really say husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her? Did God really say children obey your parents and fa- fathers don't exasperate or whatever the language was? Provoke your children to wrath. And on and on it goes. Here's what I found. This is what I've said, not what he said. For longer than I've been alive, there have been persons who promote a standard outside the Bible to interpret and judge what is inside the Bible. Now, I'm going to pull a Greer here because Greer taught me, if he didn't teach me anything else, Greer said, if there is a standard outside the Bible whereby it will prove the Bible is true, what is the ultimate truth? Is it the Bible or the standard that proves the Bible to be true? And Greer is a presuppositionalist. And what that means is Greer said, there is no, nothing can prove or disprove the Bible. It is the standard. The Bible is the standard by which every other truth claim falls under judgment. So, examples of that would be things like in science. When science back in the late 1800s and early 1900s and Darwin's theory of evolution was spreading like wildfire and, and scientists and the popular public was, was more and more convinced the Bible's account of creation can't possibly be true because now we understand how it all happened, Darwin told us. And now here we are, 
more than a hundred years later, and and honest, intellectually scientific people have written books that d- there is no evidence for Darwin. It is a leap of faith beyond any leap of faith a Christian possibly makes, because the more science has delved in to the intricacies of life and the intricacies and complexities of all that exist, we, there's no explanation for what we are experiencing right now. But the church for a time uh, parroted what science said because it was popular in the day and they were wrong. The church should have held their ground and said, let, let God be found true because every man is a liar. Uh, God's word will prevail at the end of the day. A second example would be culture. Our culture uh, often our culture says, well, the, you know, what the Bible wrote regarding sexuality, ex- a legitimate expression of sexuality within marriage, what the Bible wrote about uh, a husband-wife relationship within marriage, that was good for then. It's not good for today, because we are so far advanced. We are two thousand years. From the time that Christ and the apostles lived, we have a whole new cultural ethic that requires a whole new set of standards. And my that is wrong. God's word holds true. I don't care the culture. I don't care the people group. I don't care the language. God's word will always hold true. And we ought not to change it to satisfy a cultural appetite. At the end of the day, it will be found to be true when Christ presents himself as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Theological constructs is the last one that I will mention. And by what what I mean by that is that there is a danger to interpret Scripture by what I've decided Scripture already says. A theological construct is I have ideas... Of, of where, what I believe the Bible teaches. I've, I've got all these categories for what I think is right. And so, anytime I read something in the Bible, I say, well, it's got to fit my categories. Because that's, where I've deci- that's what I've decided is true. And that's backwards. What I need to do is examine Scripture all by itself and say, God, be merciful to me and teach me what is true. And if it doesn't fit my construct, my construct has to change. The Word of God doesn't change. I've got to change what I thought I knew. I have experienced that any number of times in my life. My eschatology's changed. My soteriology's changed. Uh, because as I, the more I acquaint myself with what God's Word says, I find that where I thought I should land wasn't always right. So, the statement would be biblical theology exegetical theology, in other words, actually just reading the Bible necessarily comes before systematic theology, putting it all together. Before you put all the parts together and say this how it fits, you've got to examine the parts and make sure you got the right part. Now here's where Dr. Greer comes in. It's only a minute long. He's going to, if you didn't understand what I just said, you are completely not going to understand what Dr. Greer is about to say. But what he's talking about is Don't let your big picture construct taint what the text actually says on any given day. Deal with the text, as difficult as it may be, and let the chips fall where they may. It's only about a minute long, and then I'm going to open it up for comments and questions. 
any viewpoint that views things under certain organizing structures, covenant theology, (laughs) dispensational theology, where we simply get the pattern and then we go to the text to find support, is backwards. Sorry. We must start with a canonical organizing principle of Scripture. The answer to my question, what principle did the Holy Spirit use, is so obvious, you'll kick yourself if you can't think of it, it's history. He gave this canon in a progressive order. I simply mean being able to think through the canonical flow of any theological notion in the Bible before one ever goes around trying to organize it under theme and logic. Systematic theology is a human activity, prone to error and in constant need of checking. There's only one thing inerrant. It's the text, not your theological reconstructions. Okay. Comments and questions? Darwin, will you pass this around as it needs be? I've got about five minutes for comments and questions. If you've, if you've got a comment or question... There you go. We've got. Alex has got something. Yeah, thanks. Uh, this is in relation to complementarianism and egalitarianism. So I tend to more the complementarianism, <laughs> but I can easily see how. Um, both can integrate when need to be. Like, for example, if the man doesn't stand up and teach the word, maybe the woman ought to and pass it down to the kids until the man can. Now, I just see how it's possible for that to happen uh, from both sides. Yeah, it's very, I'm going to say, there's a whole array of situations that we would come, could come up with and how would each one of those situations be addressed. So... Uh, in complementarianism, it doesn't mean that the husband has to do all the teaching, like, at home. You know, he's, he's, he's tasked with all those responsibilities. Uh, his wife is given as a compliment to him. In fact, like in most homes, uh, the wife does more for the child than the husband does. In most cases, not always. I know some situations that's not the, the case. But in most situations, that is the case. So it doesn't mean that there can't be shared roles, but like an example for like in a church situation, I mean, Elizabeth Elliot is interesting and in that when she, as a widow, went back to the, the South American tribe that murdered her husband and uh, the other husbands with spears, they were all killed. Uh, she went back as a missionary and she did not feel she uh, had the liberty to teach as a woman in their what they were trying to start as a church, and so she she discipled a man who then taught the church as a whole. So that's how it worked in her situation. Um, there's probably, I mean, you we could come up with all kinds of well, what if and what if this and what if that, and at the end of the day, Christ is judge, not me. Uh, what I'm going to shoot for is the mainstream. What is the what is most often true in most cases, that's what I'm dealing with. But it's good to recognize there are outliers that will require, that will be more difficult. Somebody else? Terry right there or somebody? No? Yep. Um, I had heard this week 
a lady that had a, quite a number of children talking about family. You'd mentioned family earlier and that uh, as far as being a Christian home, and she said that uh, the way she viewed, the way it functioned in their home was that uh, with um, adopted children, foster children, and their own children, that the uh, family was a uh, forgiveness factory in the home, that the family was a forgiveness factory. That's the only way they would function, to learn how to forgive. Well, and that's true in the home, that's true in the church, that's true in society. I mean, there is no utopia (laughs) this side of the grave. Uh, And God's people ought to be the ones that are leading uh, in forgiveness and reconciliation, understanding that we've been forgiven and reconciled to God through Christ. Somebody else, one last one, we're out of last anybody last let's stand and be dismissed in prayer